Hello and welcome to Rupture Crisis Transformation, Pod Academy's series looking at new perspective in the field of US studies. This podcast features the keynote presentation from world-renowned author Carol Phillips. Here's conference organizer Anna Hartnell before we hand over to Bartmore Gilbert for a more formal introduction. Carol Phillips is a major contemporary writer whose um, large body of fiction and non-fiction has involved exploring um, various aspects of his own Caribbean, British and um, now American identities. Um, so he's, like Waichi Dimmock, has been kind of, in, from a different perspective, been involved in thinking about the United States in kind of various decentered ways that are really kind of um, helpful for this particular conference. Carol is one of the most interesting and thought-provoking writers around today. Born on the Caribbean island of St Kitts, he was brought up in Leeds and studied literature at Oxford before moving eventually in a roundabout way to the US. He's worked in a number of institutions in the US and is currently Professor of English at Yale. He's actually a colleague of our first keynote today. Carol's complex background and multiple cultural affiliations have given him a very distinctive and authoritative perspectives on the range of issues which are germane to this conference, uh, including the ways in which racial, class, national and diaspora identities get re-articulated in times of rupture, crisis and transformation. He's explored these preoccupations in a wide range of genres, including drama, fiction, screenplays, and uh, in a variety of non-fictional modes, notably autobiography, travel writing and literary criticism, genres which characteristically coexist in in a relation of productive tension and collaboration. Uh, in uh, much of his work. This dual-track pattern of output is reflected in his two most recent books, uh, the novel In the Falling Snow of 2009 and the non-fiction collection Colour Me English of 2011. The importance of Carol's work has been recognised in a number of prestigious awards, including the Martin Luther King Memorial Prize, the James Tate Black Memorial Prize and the Commonwealth Writers' Prize. So distinguished uh, is uh, Carol's CV that I thought I've got to find one blot on it. And eventually I discovered that he's um, a passionate supporter of Leeds United. But we can (laughs) forgive him that, I'm sure. So the title of uh, Carol's talk is The Star-Spangled Banner. Um, And I think this is going to offer a kind of writerly rather than academic perspective on some of the new directions in US studies which are suggested by notions of uh, uh, crisis, rupture and transformation. So please give a big hand to Carol Phillips. Those of us who grew up in Britain have been spared the ordeal of having to hear the dreary tones of the national anthem, God Save the Queen, on any kind of a regular basis. Dating back to 1619, the author of the national anthem is unknown, but the anthem first appeared in a published version in 1744. I'm just about old enough to remember when God Save the Queen was played at the end of films in the cinema. At such moments, we were expected to stand to attention before filing out of the auditorium and onto the streets, 
Mercifully, this practice became obsolete before I was out of short trousers. In recent years, I've seldom had to endure the drone of the national anthem. As a nation, we hear it before the kickoff of England football matches. We also hear it on the rare occasions, at least prior to 2012, that a British athlete won a gold medal at an athletics championships or at the Olympics. We might hear a snatch of it on the news whenever the monarch turns up on an official visit, but the fact is, God Save the Queen probably reached the height of its popularity during the heyday of the British Empire, when nearly all the colonial territories utilized it as their national theme tune. However, with the onset of 20th century decolonization, God Save the Queen was quickly replaced by new national anthems in Africa, in Asia, in the Caribbean, in Australasia and Canada. These days, its ponderous beat is no longer globally ubiquitous. On the other hand, the star-spangled banner seems to be heard everywhere. The lyrics are taken from the poem, The Defense of Fort McHenry, that was written exactly 200 years ago in 1814. The author, 35-year-old lawyer and poet named Francis Scott Key, wrote the poem after he witnessed the bombardment of Fort McHenry in the Chesapeake Bay by ships of the British Royal Navy during the War of 1812. Ironically enough, the poem was soon set to the tune of a well-known British song and renamed The Star-Spangled Banner, a phrase taken from the opening stanza of the poem. In 1889, the increasingly popular song was recognized for official use by the United States Navy at all flag-raising ceremonies. And some 40 years later, on the 3rd of March, 1931, President Herbert Hoover declared it the national anthem of the United States of America. The national anthem is sung at every baseball game, before every basketball game, before football games and hockey games. It's also sung at many large public gatherings. The Star Spangled Banner is a notoriously difficult song to sing because of its wide range. It spans an octave and a half. However, with watery eyes and hands over hearts, both the featured singers and the audiences never seem to tire of pouring heart and soul into an anthem which speaks to both their love of nation and their belief in the sanctity of the land of the free and the home of the brave. In the presence of the anthem, in fact any national anthem, one is expected to comport oneself in a dignified manner. United States Code 36 USC, a statutory suggestion with no penalties associated for violations, states that during a rendition of the United States National Anthem, when the flag is displayed, all those present, except those in uniform, should stand at attention, facing the flag with the right hand over the heart. Men not in uniform should remove their headdress with their right hand and hold the headdress at the left shoulder, the, left ha the hand being over the heart. When the flag is not displayed, all present should face towards the music and act in the same manner they would if the flag were displayed. United States Code 36 USC may be a suggestion, 
and not enforceable law, but woe betide those who go out of their way to balk these traditions. On the wall of my office at home, I have a poster of the sprinters Tommy Smith and John Carlos, taken at the men's 200-metre medal ceremony during the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. As the now iconic photograph shows, both men have their hands raised in a clenched fist salute. Their heads are bowed. They stand without shoes during the playing of the national, playing of the national anthem. Even as a ten-year-old boy, I fully understood that by making their human rights protest the soundtrack of the national anthem and with the United States flag fluttering in the breeze, they risked bringing opprobrium down on their heads. And indeed, this proved to be the case, for both athletes were sent home in disgrace. However, what if you're the artist who is supposed to perform the anthem, and like Tommy Smith and John Carlos, you feel, let's just say, jaded with the tradition it comes out of and the values it's supposed to represent? As a performer, one can, of course, protest by distorting the performance of the anthem in some way, as opposed to rising to the occasion flushed with patriotic glee. Certainly distortion has played its part in recent interpretations, although we know that the devotional performance has predominated. I would like to look briefly at two distortions of the national anthem, one devotional interpretation and then consider if there might not actually be an alternative to this distortion-devotion axis. In 1969, at the music festival that became known as Woodstock, the guitarist Jimi Hendrix played his own now famous version of the Star Spangled Banner, a rendition that was generally perceived to be a protest against the Vietnam War. He bent and he twisted the song, in such a manner that it was clear that he was working outside of any familiar interpretation. To his fans, Hendrix's performance was wonderfully disrespectful, incorporating sonic effects to emphasize the rocket's red glare and the bombs bursting in air. However, Hendrix's tampering with the anthem inevitably rankled many people, especially so given the fact that it was being performed in the contentious age of civil rights, of Vietnam, and the military draft. When quizzed by the television talk show host Dick Cavett and asked to explain what exactly his outlandish delivery was meant to convey, Hendrix shrugged his shoulders and claimed somewhat unconvincingly that he didn't mean any harm by it. Really? In 1968, a year before Woodstock, the Puerto Rican singer and guitarist Jose Feliciano was clearly not protesting about anything when he simply strummed a blues-style, slow version of the anthem before Game 5 of the World Series, but all hell broke loose. There was national outrage at this exotic deviation from the norm. Only a year later, despite his protestations to the contrary, Jimi Hendrix certainly knew exactly what he was doing when he picked up his electric guitar and played his opening discordant chords. In 1990, at a baseball game between the San Diego Padres and the Cincinnati Reds, Roseanne Barr gave us her own distortion of the anthem, which sparked 
predictable outrage. Unlike Jimi Hendrix, her disruption of the national anthem didn't appear to be motivated by political passion, nor was it a response to the social conditions of the time. She is, and she was, and she is, a comedienne, and she was simply trying to be funny and poke fun at the often off-key devotional interpretations of the Star Spangled Banner. Furthermore, in her spitting and crutch-grabbing gestures at the conclusion of the anthem, she was satirizing the hyper-masculine vulgarity that surrounds much American sport. The then-President George H.W. Bush called her performative screeching disgraceful, which prompted Barr to compare her treatment by the media to the political witch-hunt that was visited upon Jane Fonda when she traveled to North Vietnam in 1972. Barr was utilizing a somewhat self-serving analogy, but the whole episode, like the episode with Hendrix, merely emphasized the degree to which this 200-year-old song is deeply connected to national pride and identity. Whatever one's motives, comic or otherwise, any transgression, however innocently meant, that might be perceived of as being disrespectful, will win you no friends. They seem to me, in general, to be totally depoliticized, sugar-coated performances which prior prioritize vocal gymnastics over clarity of content. Beyonce, Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston, Jennifer Hudson, and countless others seem keen to simply blast away. In the end, as the last dramatic notes begin to fade, one is left with the impression that these performances all sound pretty much the same. However, even more unsettling than this unbecoming rush to breathless octave surfing is the willingness of the performers to gleefully endorse the excesses of American foreign policy by reminding us of the military origins of the anthem. It almost goes without saying that many of these diva interpretations are being delivered by African-Americans who in 1814 were most certainly not living in the land of the free. Today, they continue to live in a modern home of the brave that is something less than a home for many who feel both disadvantaged and disenfranchised. I'm not asking these performers to pump a clenched fist or riff on an electric guitar or screech the words but their total capitulation to the dominant discourse and their eagerness to slavishly serve the questionable tradition is often disturbing to witness. I suggested that there might be a third way of dealing with this question of how to interpret the national anthem, a way which lies at a point somewhere between the willful distortion and craven devotion.
While it's undeniably important that any performer be able to recognize the tradition out of which the national anthem has emerged, at the same time, they must also be free to introduce their own socio-political vision and weight of cultural experience into the equation. This is what writers do when they write back the canonical texts in literature. They work carefully, dare I say, respectfully, within the tradition, the text, and they try to make something new. It's a stealthy assault which often startles, gracefully stitching one's own traditions onto the fabric of the national and or culturally dominant cloth and by doing so highlighting one's previous omission makes it impossible for anyone to ever look again at the source material in quite the same way. In part, I think this is what Jean Rhys was doing with her novel White Sargasso Sea, what Derek Walcott was doing with Ameros, and what George Lamming was doing with The Pleasures of Exile. Jane Eyre, The Odyssey and The Tempest have certainly never again been quite the same for this reader. The self-satisfied heft of the canonical literary tradition excludes people, including women. One can rail against it, but to do so, one, the one runs the risk of merely reinforcing the authority of that tradition. One can glorify it and enhance it, but to do so is to run the risk of losing oneself. Or one can be artful and work within the tradition and in the end make something new and often illuminating. In the African-American tradition, there are few artists that I admire more than Marvin Gaye. Yes, he brilliantly fused his gospel past with the secular tradition, but so did a great many 20th century African-American artists, from Sam Cooke to Aretha Franklin. However, what Gay had that they didn't was a deeply felt socio-political consciousness that was nowhere better on display than in his 1971 masterpiece, What's Going On? An album that deals with the ecology, with Vietnam, with taxes, drugs, child abandonment, in fact, pretty much everything. Of course, Tamla Motown didn't want Gay to release this album, fearing that it would destroy his career as a crossover artist. In other words, white people might not like it if he got too heavy. But Marvin Gaye insisted, despite the huge success of the album, by the end of the 70s, however, he was broke, living in a bread van in Hawaii, separated from his wife and children, and heavily dependent upon drugs. Exile followed in Britain, and then in Belgium. But in 1982, he made a return to the United States on the back of a huge hit single, Sexual Healing. Marvin Gaye's time in Europe had made him think further and more deeply about his relationship with the United States, both in terms of family and the history and the politics of his home country. Shockingly, in early 1984, an astute and perceptive but undeniable undeniably tormented Marvin Gaye, was shot dead by his own father. Marvin Gaye publicly sung the national anthem three times. First, in 1968, 
the Detroit Tigers baseball game. He was 29 years of age and a Motown star. As such, he was carefully working within the confines of the system. His 1968 version offers us a tight, somewhat unimaginative interpretation of Virgin that might in fact have been offered up by Perry Como or Bing Crosby. Eleven years later, in 1979, on the eve of his departure for Europe, Marvin Gaye sung the anthem a second time, this time just before the Larry Holmes-Ernie Shavers fight at Caesar's Palace, Las Vegas. The performance is looser, partly one suspects because of the drugs, but his restlessness with the structure of the song is now clearly evident. After all, this is the post-what's-going-on Marvin Gaye, and the singer has already broken with the Motown system and firmly placed his socio-political cards on the table. In 1983, at the NBR All-Star Basketball game, Marvin Gaye recently returned to the United States of America and with an exile's understanding of his country, gave his final performance of the national anthem. He'd long ago made it clear that he understood that his country didn't fully include him or even see him. But after time spent in Europe, he appeared to be ready to make a statement of some kind. He neither screeched, nor did he serve. He simply put his huge ambivalence with the United States, together with Francis Scott Key's words, and he made something new. He found a way to make this difficult, often turgid song work for him. He didn't rail against it, nor did he offer us pyrotechnics and try to blast his way past the song in the diva mode. It's probably the finest piece of performative writing back that I know of in the American tradition. 200 years after it was first written and sung, Francis Scott Key's clarion call is, if anything, being increasingly used for raucous chest-beating of the most myopic kind. The damn song is everywhere, all the time, and the more I hear it, the more I miss the coherent, inclusive artistry of Marvin Gaye, whose understated elegance, whose finely poised ambiguity, serves to remind us that the great gift of the United States of America to the world is the gift of reinvention. In fact, artistry, such as Marvin Gaye's, can even make one perceive beauty where before one only heard a whine. Oh, say, could you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming? Whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly gleaming and the rocket's red glare the bombs bursting in air gave proof through the night that our flag is still there oh say does that star-spangled banner yet wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave
This podcast is part of our Rupture Crisis Transformation series, offering new perspectives on American studies. You can listen to more podcasts in this series on the Pod Academy website. This includes the other keynote presentation of the day by Carol's colleague, Waichi Dimmock. The series was produced by me, Joe Barrett, with Lucy Bradley.